If you've got a Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke. We're in our Advent series, looking at the birth, the foretelling and birth of John the Baptist, the foretelling and birth of Jesus. The last two weeks, and Brian done a phenomenal job um, expounding upon the foretelling of Jesus' birth for us. And I looked at the foretelling of John the Baptist's birth before we went to South Africa this morning. We find ourselves looking at his actual birth and unfolds afterwards as we move toward Luke 2 on Christmas Eve and look at the birth of Jesus and the people's acknowledgement of him. This morning we're in Luke 7 through 80. It's a long text. We're going to read it together. If you don't have a copy of it, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57, Luke writes, Time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the Spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now listen, every year at this time, it amazes just how sentimental Christmas becomes. We did a little excursion last night after dinner. We took our kids around the neighborhood to look at Christmas lights. And every year, like in the neighborhood, right, the, the People's Choice Awards and the, all the HOA awards that are given out, man, the, 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 the light shows just become more and more and more and more extravagant. And so, you know, you've got dancing Kool-Aid men on video screens. There was one in, like if, in Wood Creek, here, right, there was a video screen that played music videos, actual television videos, while the lights danced around, and the Kool-Aid. Man, you know what I'm talking about? Big red Kool-Aid man with a face like he was on the video with some hip-hop artist. Uh, it was 
pretty epic, okay? But every year it gets more and more extravagant. I mean, that's one of our family traditions. We drive around town and look at Christmas lights. Your family probably has traditions as well. Right? I've heard about some of those. But every family has traditions, and oftentimes the sentimentality of Christmas revolves around the traditions from generation to generation to generation. Okay, and so you might put up lights and you put up a tree and there's a star on the top of the tree and there's tinsel and there's garland, there's decorations all across the home. Right? You might have lights out in the yard. Maybe you're one of those people, okay? With just, it looks like Christmas threw up in your front yard. Okay, and, and there's just tons and tons of lights. Maybe the traditions that your family engages in, right? The giving and receiving of gifts like many families do. Maybe it's the baking of sweets. Mmm. Talking my language now, okay? My wife yesterday spent a good portion of her morning baking sugar cookies and making Oreo balls, dipping pretzel rods. Um, I mean, there's just all kinds of sugary, fattening stuff in my home right now that I need you to come and take away from me so that I don't eat it. Right? Those are traditions that families have. But listen, a lot of those family traditions, and there's nothing wrong with those family traditions, but they create a sense around. Christmas, lights, trees, decorations, and sweets. But the text that we read this morning, church, I want, you to, I want you to know something. The text we read this morning reminds us that you can have lights, and you can have stockings, and you can have trees and decorations, and you can have enough candies and cookies on your bar or island to make your stomach turn and not have Christmas. And you cannot have lights, and not have trees, have decorations and not have stockings and not have sweets and still have Christmas. Because Christmas is not about soft sentimentality. But listen, it is about cosmic conquest. That's what it's about. It's about a cosmic conquest. In fact, we read about it in Revelation chapter 12 as well. John has this great vision in the heavens as God opens his mind to see things that the rest of us have not seen. In Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, And a great sun appeared in heaven with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and horns, and on his head seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to His throne. John has this vision, and scholars might debate who the woman is. Possibly the nation of Israel is going to give birth, bring forth the Messiah. And as she brings forth the Messiah, there is a great dragon or an adversary in the heavens ready to devour Him. This one who was born and destined for dominion and rule. That's why He was born. That's why He comes forth. See, Christmas is not about sentimentality, but about conquest, about conquering, about God showing up in human history to do something. But what has He shown up to do? Because see, Christmas church is not just about the fact that Jesus came. 
There's a lot of people in our culture who are going to celebrate here the fact that Jesus came. But listen, I want you to know that Christmas is not only about that fact, but about the reason, the purpose for which he has come. And Zechariah, in his prophecy, tells us that purpose. Listen, it's interesting in the text that whenever Zechariah's mouth is finally loose, right after 10 months of silence because he was muted, because he didn't believe the angel Gabriel when he showed up in the temple. So 10 months of silence, of losing every single argument to because he couldn't talk. So she wins everything for 10 months. But John is born. The whole neighborhood gathers around. And, and Elizabeth says, his name shall be John. And they're all scratching their heads because in those days, named the child after, uh, it was a family name that was passed down. Right? And they're like, no one is named John in your family. Where is that coming from? So they wanted to name him Zechariah, but they look at Zechariah, they make motions to him, right? They're maybe doing some sign language. I don't know sign language, but they were doing some sign language, pointing like, what's his name going to be? Mouthing things out. John can still hear, he just can't talk. How that went down, but that John eventually says, give me a tablet, and he begins to scratch out his name, and as he turns it around, and he shows them his name, it reads, his name shall be John. And in that moment, his tongue is loosed, and he begins to speak, and out of his mouth comes this prophecy in verses 68 through 79. And in that prophecy, we find the reason that God has come. And listen, what Zechariah tells us about the reason that God has come is that He's come to rescue us from the hands of our enemies. That's why He has come. Rescue us from the hands of our enemies. In two places in this text, we read about this. In verse 71 and verse 74. Listen to what Zechariah prophesies. He says, we, he says, as in verse 71, as we read about God having worked, he says he's done this, that we should be saved from our enemies in the hand of all who hate us. And then in verse 74, the result of God's mercy would be our deliverance from the hand of our enemies. Now listen, for the original audience, as those words fell on their ears, perhaps the very first thing they're thinking about is our enemies are our foreign occupiers, oppressors, this nation this empire of Rome that has set up a residence within our borders. That's how they're tempted to think of this, these enemies that they're to be delivered from. But listen, I want you to know in the text, Zechariah does not say a geopolitical entity that the nation of Israel is going to be delivered from. He doesn't reference that at all. You see, a part of the problem is that Israel had in their mind uh, these prophecies from the Old Testament that referred to, looking back now, we can see referred to the second arrival of Jesus, the second advent, which will be a geopolitical event because be, His kingdom will cover the, the earth like the water. His glory will manifest. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. It will take place one day, just not yet. But in his first advent, he still comes to deliver from enemies. Listen to how John says it. He says, and you, child, in verse 76, will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now notice what he doesn't say. This is what he doesn't say. It doesn't read like this. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of the toppling of kingdoms and empires because of the absolute strength and might of our God, whereby His judgment shall fall on the Gentile oppressors and drive out all who would rule over our nation and reinstate our national sovereignty. That's not what the text says. It doesn't talk about the toppling of kingdoms. It talks about the forgiveness of sins. That's what John says. Prepare His way. His people might know what it means to be forgiven by God. Salvation that John's referring to, the deliverance that John's referring to is not geopolitical, but it is spiritual. Then the, and the enemies that he's delivering us from are not geopolitical, but they are spiritual, but real enemies nonetheless. And this week as I thought about the enemies that God's come to deliver us from, there's at least four you this morning. The first one is this. God has come to deliver us from our cultural enemy. To deliver us from the world. See, you and I have a cultural enemy. It's the world. Now listen, when I say the world, I don't mean the things that God has. What I'm talking about is a particular perspective that looks upon the things that God has made and elevates them to the place of them being all that there is. Right, there's the world that God made is good. Worldliness is evil. And worldliness is that perspective by which we view everything that we see around us and believe that it's fixed, that it is permanent, that it is of utmost importance and value. And so we trust in it. We have disordered loves that cling to it. Right? We're passionate about it. Worldliness is evil, but the world is good. And yet, that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed to what? This world. Because this world is trying to press us into a particular mold. I can remember when my kids were younger and they were going through the Play-Doh phase. Okay? I remember very well-meaning and kind people gave us hordes of mold modeling clay or molding clay. Right? Some of which is residing in the fibers of our carpet to this day, which will never be removed. <laughs> right? And the, along with the clay, they also gave us these molds. And you could take the clay and you put it in the mold and you press the mold down on top. And when you lifted it up, there's a little boy or a little girl or a house or a dog or like a car or an airplane, whatever it was, it was pressed. And it created, it formed it into its image. And listen, we have a cultural enemy known as the Bible refers to as the world that is trying to press us into its mold. It's trying to press us into its mold. And listen, there are a variety of ways it presses us, but one very pervasive way, particularly within our culture, that tries to press us into that mold is to look at us, ourselves in the mirror, and to assign value and worth and significance to our lives on the basis of what we have achieved and what we have acquired. In other words, our possessions, our positions, our wealth, 
and our work. See, the world wants us to believe that we have value, that our life has meaning if we've risen, if we've risen the ladder, if we've achieved a great deal and we've acquired a lot of stuff, then we must be significant, important, and valuable. That's the, the, the mold the world is trying to press us into, is to estimate our value and worth on the basis of what we've acquired and achieved. Anybody feel the pressure to see yourself that way? I know I do. I'm not exempt from this. So we have an enemy, a cultural enemy. Not only do we have a cultural enemy, we also have an internal enemy. It's called the flesh. The flesh. See, now, the Bible uses that term in a couple of ways. It's not talking about this body. Because God made it good. But the flesh is the remnant of our sin nature that's still operative in our lives. That, is fan, that, that it causes evil desires to rise within our heart and evil actions to be perpetrated by our bodies. Okay, so the flesh is I'm not talking about the fact that the body is your enemy. No, nature that still is within you, the remnant of that sin nature that's left within you, even though you've been redeemed if you're a Christian, you still struggle with the flesh. There's still a remnant of that sin nature in you. And it shows itself through your sinful desires. And it shows itself through unrighteous deeds. And it is your enemy. Make no mistake about it. Do not give it quarter. <laughs> because if you do, it will destroy you. In fact, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. They are not neutral. Okay? The flesh is not like Switzerland never taking a side in any global conflict. It has an agenda. And it wants to wage war against your soul. It wants to erode your sense of, of, of identity in Christ. Listen, the, and listen, many, when many of us think about the flesh, here's what we often think about. We often think about bad things that we want to do. But listen, when the Bible refers to the passions of the lust of our flesh, oftentimes the word lust or passions is, is this word. It's epithumeo. Okay, you're like, well, that's brilliant, right? What in the world does that mean? Right? Thumeo is, is a desire, and epi is a prefix that indicates over or ordinate. And so, what, literally with what that word translated, lust means this, an over-desire. Now listen, you can have over-desires for bad things, right? But you can also have over-desires for good things that leads you to do bad things in order to try and get them or fulfill them, right? Andy Minio says it this way, much cooler than I ever could, uh, in the first line of his song, Uptown, when he says, this. He says, look, we're in love with the we don't love the inventor. We're in love with the invention. We don't love the inventor. That's our problem. We're head over heels with created things with little to no regard for the creator. And when we have an desire for things that have been created, things that may be good things that were intended for our enjoyment, for our fulfillment, for our satisfaction. 
But whenever we're infatuated with those things and our loves are disordered so they become priorities in our lives and define our realities, they eventually begin to unravel our lives so much so that our souls become frayed because they're warring against our souls, church. The passions of the flesh, the over-desires of the flesh are warring, is warring against your soul. It is not neutral. And loving the invention more than the inventor and the creation more than the creator expresses itself in a whole lot of ways. Listen, let me give you a few examples. This is why some people are house poor and beauty broke. Okay? Is it wrong to desire to have a stable home? No. The problem is that our desire for that stable home is stoked into this burning passion by, by whatever show we watch on HGTV, okay? I mean, we've got to have that particular expression of a stable home. And so what we end up doing is overextending ourselves financially and we become house poor. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Guys are quiet. Or be broke. Is it wrong to want to be presentable and look nice? No, that's not wrong at all. But listen, when it comes to, you see this, this in celebrities that I used to watch in the movie um, or on TV as I was growing up, they all now have like procedures. They don't look the same anymore. Things got stretched, right? Or maybe you're not going to receive plastic surgery, or maybe you've got a closet full of clothes and you just cannot stop buying. It's a manifestation of an epi mayo kind of desire. Some people eat too much, or it's a particular body image they're wanting to maintain, and so they refuse themselves food, or why some people medicate their pain by taking more than their body needs. Is it wrong to eat a good meal? No, not at all. But when that becomes a means of fulfilling your deepest longings, trying to satisfy and medicate your pain, you have problems. This is why some people who want to have a, the, the intimacy of sexual expression and yet out the confines of a covenant relationship, God made us as sexual beings to express that. But whenever we go outside the confines of a marital relationship and we pursue companionship without covenant, Right? There is an over-desire. That's why so many people have sacrificed right, healthy relationships for unhealthy ones because they desire companionship so deeply. This is why so many people are addicted to pornography because they want sexual expression and fulfillment before it's time and outside of its context. Those are over-desires. And they become ruling desires of our lives that are waging war against our souls. And they are your enemy. Third. Third. Not only do we have an internal enemy, we also have a personal enemy. It's called the devil. The devil. First Peter chapter 5 says it this way. Be reminded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around someone to devour. In the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, when our first parents are there in the garden, Satan 
adversary comes to them, not in the form of a lion, but in the form of a serpent. Ways that the devil is pictured in the scriptures. One is a serpent, one is a lion, and they operate very differently. Right? A serpent is crafty, schemes, deceives, tempts. What does a lion do? A lion doesn't need to do that. Why? Because it can overpower, it can roar, its mighty jaws can lock on and cause great suffering. Right? One slithers and one causes great amounts of suffering in our lives. And yet, He is our adversary. He is our enemy. And we're told in 1 Peter 5 that He's prowling, looking for someone to devour. He wants to destroy us, church. Personally. He wants to find the areas of your life. Areas of your life in which you have let down your guard, in which there is not a shield of faith. There is not a breastplate of righteousness. You're not being guarded by the belt of truth. You have not put on the helmet of salvation. You have not taken out the sword of the Spirit to defend off your enemy. He wants to find those places, those kinks in the armor, and He wants to run you through. Destroy you. So we have a personal enemy. Not only do we have a personal enemy and an internal enemy and a cultural enemy, but listen, we also have a final enemy. That is death. Death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes, The last to destroy is death. And further down in verses 54 to 55, he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, death wants to have the final word in our life because. God has come to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. I want you to know that death is like a stingerless hornet now. Hornets terrify me. Like small birds. Okay? They inflict great amounts of pain if they were to sting you. But listen, Paul says, because death is now a stingerless hornet, it doesn't have the sting. It can threaten to have us but eventually, one day, the grave will have to give us up. So we have these enemies. We have death. And it still hurts in this life. But one day we know that death shall be no more. So we have death. We have the devil. We have the flesh. And we have the world. These are the enemies in the first advent of Jesus that He's come to rescue and deliver us from. But why? Why does God do this? I'm going to give you two reasons from Zechariah's prophecy. The first one is this. It's very simple because he said he would. You know that? Because he said he would. Listen, in verses 72 to 73, we're told that, the, that what, what, what God has done, because most of the prophecy doesn't refer to John the Baptist. Most of it refers to Jesus. Jesus coming to redeem His people. Jesus coming to visit His people. Jesus coming to rescue His people. And in verses 72 and 73, we're told why He's done this. is to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. Which begs the question, what oath is Zechariah referring to? What oath did He make to Abraham that would be a demonstration of His mercy? And if you follow Fifteen, you're going to find that what God does there is He makes a covenant with Abraham. In fact, He ratifies the covenant with 
Abraham. In Genesis 12, he establishes and he says what? Your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars and the sky and the sand on the beach that you might be a blessing to the nations that through your line, I'm going to bless the world. And then in Genesis 15, he ratifies that covenant with this ceremony. Strange ceremony to our eyes, but a ceremony nonetheless. So what God does is He calls Abraham out and He says, Abraham, I want you to go get some birds. Alright? Abraham goes out and gets some birds. Excuse me. Abraham goes out and gets some birds. He says, Abraham, I want you to cut them in half. <laughs> right? And I want you to put one side of the carcass on this side, the other side of the carcass on this side. And then Abraham, what God does there as Abraham lines everything up, Right? This was kind of a, a, a common way of ratifying a treaty in the ancient world between two kings. Okay? And this is what they, this is what they would do. They would, they would put the carcasses of the animals on each side of the path, and then one king would walk through and the other king would walk through. And as they walked through, as they ratified a treaty, they entered into a covenant. Here's what they were saying. Be it done unto me. In other words, have me torn in two should I fail to uphold my promise and pledge to you? And so Abraham sets up all the birds. And then God does something pretty unique. God comes to Abraham and He causes him to fall into a deep sleep. And Abraham is laid on the side of the path. And then God appears in the form of a smoking pot. And He passes through, saying, be it done unto me, Abraham, should I fail to uphold my pledge and promise to you. But guess what he does? He passes through twice. You know why? Because he was saying, Abraham, be it done unto me if I fail to fulfill my pledge and promise to you. And Abraham, be it done unto me if you fail to fulfill your pledge and promise to me. May I be torn in two. May my flesh be stripped from my bone if I fail to be faithful to you and if you fail faithful to me. He pledged to show mercy to Abraham and to his offspring as he ratifies that covenant with them. Church, do you know where God fulfilled His pledge and promise to His people? Because all throughout the history of Israel and even into our day and time, His people have failed to faithfully execute all the duties of the covenant that God had enacted with them. Israel shows it time and time and time and time in which she would turn away from her God. And God would discipline her and bring her back. And then she would turn away again. And God would discipline her and bring her back. And over and over again, she shows herself to be faithless. And over and over again, God shows Himself to be faithful. Until He reaches the point of having His own flesh torn in two. Having flesh torn from His bone to demonstrate His faithfulness to His people even though they've been faithless towards Him. And it took place at the cross. As God Himself stepped down into human history and was torn in two 
people to fulfill the pledge that he had made to Abraham to demonstrate his mercy to from us what we deserved. Because he said he would. But second of all, not only because he said he would, but because he cares for us, church. Because he cares for us. Look at what Zechariah says in verse 68. He says, be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now listen, there's several reasons you might visit somebody, right? You might go next door and knock on a neighbor's door in order to borrow a tool, right? They, they have something that you need, and so you come, and you ask for it, and you borrow it, and you take it home, and you use it, and you bring it back, hopefully. <laughs> or else it sits in your garage for several years until they go to look for it and use it the next time. Right? You might go to visit someone to borrow something from them. Right? You might go to visit someone to bring something to them. Right? It might be somebody who has just had a baby, like the Cantus, and they've got this little bundle of joy who cries and eats and sleeps and poops. Right? That's all they do. And so you might go to bring something to them, bring a meal to serve them. But you might also visit someone for another reason. You might visit someone just because you care about them deeply about them. Somebody who's in the hospital had surgery, receiving treatment. You might show up in that hospital room to read Scripture with them, to pray with them, because you care for them, because you love them deeply. You show up to visit them. And listen, whenever the Bible speaks of God coming to visit His people, He did not come to borrow something from you and I. He came something to bring something to us because of His care concern, and love for us. This fourth Sunday of Advent is historically the Sunday we celebrate God's love. It's the love candle that is lit this fourth Sunday of Advent. And I want you to know, church, that if one thing, the only thing you walk away this morning knowing about Christmas and what it means is this, is that no matter how much you believe that God is not concerned about you, no matter how much you believe that God has forgotten about you, no matter how much you believe that God stands against you, you can know because of Christmas and because of Christ that God is for you, that He cares for you, concerned for you, and that He's shown up to bring you something that you could not achieve for yourself. Because we are all tempted to believe. Because remember, the enemy of the world is trying to press us into this mold of thinking that I only have value and worth if I achieve something great. Acquire a lot of stuff. The flesh is trying to destroy your soul by taking good things and making them into ultimate things to where you would give your life to get them. Because then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll be fulfilled. The devil is trying to tempt you into believing, into believing that God doesn't care about you. Why, why would God withhold something from you? Just like our first parents in the garden. Do you see that? If God really cared about you, He would let you have unbridled freedom. He's trying to tempt you. Or He's trying to overpower you with the jaws of suffering in your life to crush you. To say, if God had that happen, 
how can you possibly care? If God let that come to pass in your life, how could He possibly be this God of love? And if God would give you over to death, how could He possibly be be the kind of compassionate Savior that He claims to be? You see, all these things work together. God has visited his church. So no matter how much evidence there may be to the contrary in your life, you look at verse 68 and you say, God loves me. He cares for me. He's shown up for me. He's done for me what I could not do for myself. He didn't come because He needed something from me. He came because I needed something from Him. And you saturate your mind with that truth. We have just a few minutes left to ask and answer this question. How did He do it? What did He do? Rescued us from our enemies. Why did He do it? Because He said He would and because He cares for you. But how did he do it? Listen, the way that he has run them through, he has impaled them upon a horn. <laughs> I love the graphic imagery here in the text. Listen, in verse 69, he says that he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, listen, there are two types of horns mentioned in the Old Testament there's a musical instrument, and then there's the horn of a wild ox. Guess which one he's referring to here. He's not playing in an orchestra, people. But he's going to war. And he's going to war against our enemies to impale them and to run them through. Listen, this horn that he's referring to here is a sign of strength and a means of victory in the Old Testament. In Psalm 92, verses to 10, we read, For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. And in Micah chapter 4, verse 13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. In that day and age, iron was what? The strongest metal known to man. Impenetrable, indestructible. And I will make your hooves bronze and you shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This is the kind of horn he's referring to. A horn of victory. A sign of strength by which God would conquer His enemies and ours. And listen, the horn of salvation in the Old Testament is only spoken of with reference to God Himself. In 2 Samuel 22, 2 and 3, And he says, he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God and my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence. Samuel says this, quoting Psalm 18. Listen, God is the horn of our salvation. He is the one who runs through all of our enemies and impales them 
And in Zechariah's prophecy, in verse 69, he says, God has visited because he cares for us. God has redeemed us out of his great love for us. God has fulfilled his oath to Abraham to demonstrate mercy to us by raising up a horn from the house of David, a sprite all of our enemies. And you know what his name is, church? His name is Jesus. The horn of your salvation. I love the way John Potter expresses this in a Christmas sermon from 1980. Okay? It's been a while. But I think the image is significant nonetheless. I want you to hear what he says. He says, Satan may be a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but none of them who take refuge in Christ, the horn of salvation, can he destroy. He says, if I were an artist, I would paint for my home a special Christmas painting this year and hang it on the wall near the manger scene. It would be one of those big oil canvases. The scene would be a distant hill at dawn. The sun is about to rise behind the hill and the rays shine. And all alone, silhouetted on the hill in the center of the picture, very dark, is a magnificent wild ox standing with his back feet tall and the crown of his head nine feet tall. On both sides of his head, there is a horn curving out and up six feet long and 12 inches thick at the base. He stands there sovereign and serene facing the southern sky and his massive neck slightly cocked and impaled at the end of his right horn hangs a huge lion that is dead. Imagine that picture. Jesus running through all of your enemies. Destroying and defeating them. Declaring His victory That he has been victorious over all your pride and all your porn. He's been victorious over all your greed. He's been victorious over all your lust. He's been victorious over all your lack of compassion. He's been victorious over all your sins of omission, the things that God has said you ought to do, but you have not done. And he's been victorious over all the sins of commission, the things that God has said you ought not do, but you have done. He's been victorious for every enemy that would stand in your way. All the flesh that wages war against your soul. All the temptations of the enemy and all the jaws of the lion that would sense down upon you. He's been victorious over all of those things. He is the horn that has won the victory for you and for me, church. We have one person to talk back to me this morning. He is the horn. Here's how we ought to respond. Declaring His praises and demonstrating His victory. Declaring His praises. Look at Zechariah's words. The very first words off his lips in over nine months are what? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Praise begins to flow from Zechariah's mouth as he considers with such confidence all that God has done for him. You know, I was thinking this, this week about a song by, the name, by, by Aaron Schust. It's called Ever Beyond My Lips. And this is what it says. Your love is like a ring of solid gold, like a vow that 
tested like covenant of old. Your love is enduring through the beyond the horizon with mercy for today. Faithful you have been and faithful you will be. You pledge yourself to me and that is why I sing. You father the orphan. Your kindness and you shoulder our weaknesses and your strength becomes our own. Now you're making me like you. Clothing me in white. Bringing beauty from ashes. Will have your bride. Free from all her and rid of all her shame and known by her true name. And that is why I sing. Your praise will ever be on my lips. Ever be on my lips. And that refrain is repeated over and over and over again. For what You have done, God, I will declare Your praises. They will ever be on my lips. Ever be on my lips. And I wonder if this Christmas praises are ever on Your lips in response to all that you've done in defeating and declaring victory over all of your enemies. But not only we would declare His praises, but finally, we would demonstrate His victory. Church, the way that we demonstrate His victory over our enemies is to serve Him without fear. That's what Zechariah tells us in verses 74 and 75. He says, the purpose for which God has demonstrated His mercy and kept His word is that we being delivered from our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. So you can serve the Lord without fear of the world. You know why? Because what God has done is He's taken the mold of the world and He's shattered it. And He's established a new mold to conform us not to the thoughts of the world, but to conform us to the image of His Son. And so you can serve God without fear of the world's estimation of your worth and value because you know it does not lie in what you've achieved or acquired. That whether you've done small things or whether you've done big things, that He cares for you, that He loves you, your identity is rooted in Him. What He's done for you, not what you've done for Him. You can serve the Lord without fear of the flesh and of its ability to destroy you. Because listen, church, listen, he has in his in the horn of salvation that he has raised up. Listen, the promise of the new covenant is this, that he would give you a new heart, that he'd plant new desires within you. Right? So you would go to war against those things that are waging war against your soul with the promise of new desires that would produce new thoughts, new actions as you yield to the Holy Spirit as He forms you into the image of His Son. You serve God without fear of the devil. You know why? Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there's a promise that's made that one day, one would come and though the serpent would strike his heel, I have a reason to hate snakes. You know that? There is no good one in my book. Though he would strike his heel, there would be one who would come that would crush his head. And there was one who would come who would silence the mouth of a lion, still his So you can serve God without fear. Suffering. 
And listen, you can serve God without fear of death because you know that that final enemy will be dealt with, has been dealt with through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And one day you will rise with him and so you can pour your life out here for his glory and serve him without any fear of what lies in the hospital room or in your bedroom whenever hospice shows up. Because you will walk in victory glory and enjoy Him forever. So church, why not live free from the things that He has set you free from? This Christmas. If you remind yourself, all the traditions are great. But it's not about the soft sentiment. It's about this cosmic conquest through which he has made you free. Let's pray together. For today, we thank you for your mercy that you swore to our, your, our father Abraham. That you swore on oath to him that you, that you would fulfill your covenant. You would be faithful to faithlessness. And you fulfilled that promise by visiting us because you cared for us, because you loved us, because you were concerned for us. So many of the accusations of our personal enemy and adversary, the devil, may they fall on deaf ears this Christmas because we know that you love us. May the jaws of the lion not, may they be stilled and closed in our lives. Father, may we be free from evaluating and esteeming our worth on the basis of the world's mold. And may we go to war against our flesh, the remnants of sin that remain within us. And may we do so Hearing your praises. May they ever be on our lips. And may we demonstrate to the world just how free we may be in Christ. May we be free from the things that you have set us free from. We pray in Jesus' name.